I think we have this new wave of understanding that we're more than dancers, that we have become a little bit of like cultural ambassadors, that when we go out and dance, you know, we're representing a huge region and, and a lot of cultures and belly dance kind of encompasses a lot of folklore now. So we are, we're responsible for a big land, a big, a big region. Whether you're a professional dancer or just started falling in love with belly dance, welcome to the belly dance live podcast. Here, we are diving deep into all facets of Baladin's world that cannot be found in a workshop or an audience seat. Every week, you will find new, honest, thought-provoking, inspiring, and educational conversation with top leading professionals of our industry. I'm your host, Jana Komornitska, and I'm honored that you are part of our dance tribe. This episode is brought to you by the Yana Dance Club, online platform where you can get access to all my teaching materials at once. Hundreds of technique drills, multiple choreographies, themed intensives, full-length courses, everything you can think about. Whether 20 minutes or few hours for practice, you will find a program that will fit not only your schedule, but your mood as well. First seven days are free, so check it out at yanadanceclub.com, link in the show notes. Hello, dear dancers, welcome to the Belly Dance Live podcast, and I'm so excited today to share really cool news and updates. So, you are literally the first ones to discover, I haven't even announced it on social media, but... Tomorrow I will announce everywhere a new dance challenge. Have you missed dance challenges with me? <laughs> it has been a while since I was since I was doing anything like that. And I remember having so much fun and excitement doing and inspiration from the feedback that I was receiving from all of you while we were doing our recent oh not that recent already, last few years ago, uh, Baladin's Life Podcast Challenges. So now I decided to come back to it with a, a little bit smaller format, but still big dance joy, and to share the joy of dancing all together, especially slowly approaching holidays time, and before we dive into the hardcore holiday party and family time, I think it's perfect time to do a little bit of dancing all together. So, follow my social media announcements, but starting from tomorrow, from December 1st, I am announcing a dance challenge, which basically will be just learn the dance. I'm gonna share part of my choreography, one of my choreographies, to a beautiful song Alamuni by Firuz. I'm pretty sure many of you heard this song and the music is just enchanting. I also hope you will enjoy dance combo to it too. And all you need to do is uh, learn the combo, share your video, Tag me so I can actually see it. And the challenge will be running for two weeks until December 14th. And on December 15th, I'm going to do a gift raffle among all participants who shared their video. So closer to the holiday time, they will receive in the 
mailbox one more extra gift from me all rules will be announced at the uh, webpage yanandansclub.com slash challenge i will include a link to the in the show notes so you can see all rules you can see cool gifts that you can um, get and of course you will see the dance combo that you will need to learn and share i'm really excited about it very happy to come back to more of those like social media dance activities and to see our community celebrating dance celebrating joy and celebrating dancing together because it's not about competing with each other it's about thriving and sharing our passion to dance all together so do not miss it tomorrow december 1st i will be announcing it everywhere i decided today to do here on the podcast the very first announcement so for people who listen immediately once the podcast out know you're the very first ones to discover it but all information will be shared everywhere on december 1st and don't forget to check the webpage yanadansclub.com slash challenge to discover more and to participate and another exciting news that i'm happy to share with you today is our today's guest please welcome jackie barsui a rock sharky belly dance instructor and performer originally from queens new york based now in north carolina she has been dancing all her life and focuses on folkloric dances from Egypt, North Africa, Iraq and the Persian Gulf. Recently she created the first ever Mizrahi dance archive to highlight specific Jewish dances from MENA regions. She has been teaching Middle Eastern dance since 2011 and is passionate about creating environments where people can dance, connect and build community. Her project, the Mizrahi Dance Archive, has mission to collect and organize the information we have of specific Jewish dances from Middle Eastern regions and to also bring these dances to life in fun and relevant ways to share with communities all around the world. The Mizrahi Dance Archive is an educational tool to showcase the diversity of the Jewish people and the deep connections between art dance and Judaism. And in our today's conversation we talked uh, about two, let's say, major things. One was uh, Jackie's personal dance story, how she got involved, how she followed her passion and this naivety that we have when we are very often just the beginner dancers, but how it can lead to some really incredible and beautiful things in the future. We also talked about different stages, uh, how she was describing herself like a beginner dancer, a teenage dancer, okay, now adult dancer and professional dancer and what each stage actually means at least in her specific journey. And of course, the second major topic of our conversation was Mizrahi culture, her project Mizrahi Dance Archive, and uh, Jewish culture and its influence on cultures of the Middle East. 
Middle and Near East and also influence on uh, ballet dance and uh, music, Jewish music that is appropriate for dancing, uh, some dance styles that became folkloric styles of uh, manor cultures that I'm pretty sure ballet dancers need at least to be aware of since as we also talked in this interview today, ballet dance is not just sharky, the rock sharky. This term also embraces the folkloric parts and folkloric styles of different regions. So it's very important to understand the richness and variety of these styles and not limit just to the very few basic ones, but the more we learn, the better. And of course, the more we learn, the more we discover that we don't know things <laughs> because it's endless topic, but that's not the reason to stop your education, that's for sure. And uh, in our today's conversation, we specifically talked about influence of Jewish culture on dances in Morocco, Yemen, Tunisia, Uzbekistan, about Egypt we also uh, talked and uh, I feel that this topic is very often kind of like uh, um, not digged deep enough among ballet dance community because we usually think about ballet dance like okay Egyptian style or uh, what's happening in Egypt what's happening in Turkey Lebanon then we start thinking also like Morocco other North African countries but uh, Israel and in general like Jewish culture that's not the very first association that most ballet dancers will have uh, with this uh, topic so I think it's very cool and valuable to have such projects as the Mizrahi Dance Archives and such people as Jackie who put together this work this information for community to be available for and not only for future generations but even for us for current generation to be more aware and to be more educated of what exactly is embraced in the manner culture and uh, how is it related to our activities and what we do even if you're doing just ballet dance, just rock sharky, but still it's very much influenced by folkloric styles of this region. So on this note, I wish you pleasant listening. Don't forget to uh, share this interview with your friend who you think may be also interested in this topic or maybe do a screenshot and share, do shout out on social media. That's always very appreciated and that's the greatest way you can support this podcast. And also don't forget to send your appreciation to our guest and of course check out all awesome resources i put links extra links also in the show notes about things that jackie was mentioning during the interview so check that out and don't forget to say uh, send thank you to our awesome guest today on this note let's dive in hello jackie so nice to have you on the podcast today thank you for joining us <laughs> Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I've been such a longtime fan of the podcast, so I'm, I'm just thrilled to be on it. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's really a pleasure. So I guess you kind of can predict some of my questions and at least where we will start. But I would like to start from the very beginning. And I know you have a, quite an interesting story, not because dance and music was part of your like family and bringing and culture, but also because uh, you kind of picked up some, some inspiration from your Turkish friend uh, when you were a child. So can you tell a little <laughs> bit more about this? <laughs> 
Wow. Okay. First of all, you do very good research. I don't even know how you <laughs> how you knew that. I'm very impressed. But um, yeah, my my dance history is kind of long and unusual um, and very very weird. But I'm I'm excited to share it. I don't get to share this a ton. But I've been dancing my my entire life. I think the first time I performed on the stage, I was like four years old or something. Extremely extremely young. What um, was that? I definitely credit. It was some like. <sighs> like little kids show. I don't even know if we were doing real moves. We were just kind of flailing around, <laughs> you know, when little kids are in a dance class, it's, but we were on a big stage and we were doing, um, the, the old song, like around the world. It's like an old kid song. And I had like this Irish costume. That's all I remember. I don't think there's actually real moves in it because we were so young. Um, but I remember the stage and, dance has just always been there. And I, I definitely credit my mom for realizing that and putting me in, in all these kind of random classes and events throughout my life. Um, and just the way I grew up, I wasn't in like a structured dance studio or class, like which is more typical, I think here in the US. If you say you dance your whole life, you're in kind of like a, a school or you know you have recitals or you go through ballet and tap and jazz. And Where I grew up in Queens, New York, I was just around so many different cultures and so many different types of people. I would go to dance classes that were, you know, after school programs and we'd be doing Latin dances. And then the next week do like African dances and hip hop. And it was always really random, but I always knew that I had to be dancing. Even at such a young age, it was my entire identity, which is, you know, funny for a little kid to just know so for sure. Like, this is what I'm born to do. It's like breathing. Um, and so, like you said, I had Middle Eastern dance kind of around me, family, friends, or within my own family, or just kind of the, you know, the neighborhood I grew up in. Um, so it was all forming and pushing me into the direction of, of belly dance, but it wasn't mm -hmm. until I, I became pretty close with a friend who lived down the block for me. Um, she was Turkish and, She, her parents always had Turkish TV on and I just have these memories of like, there's always a belly dancer on the TV, even if they're watching like the news. I just always remember there was a dancer kind of on the side of the screen. And so I would get these beautiful images through being at her house all the time. And we were so young. We were probably like, I don't know, 11, 12, 13 Um, but she was a great dancer. She was, uh, still is an incredible artist. She sings, she dances, she paints, and she would like teach me some moves, but like kind of actual technique. I remember her showing me like mm. figure eights and stuff. And, um, I was so impressed by it. And because I love to dance, I was just hungry for it. And I would take these moves home and like kind of invent others, or I thought I was inventing others. I would go home and reverse the figure eight or <laughs> do like a, you know, a, a vertical figure eight, or I thought I was inventing so much cool stuff. Later when YouTube came, I realized I didn't invent anything. It's actual moves of belly dance, but it was a really cool way to go into that world, which is that it came from a close friend. It came from like the atmosphere around me, but then also being a very young girl and exploring the moves in my own body, was something really unique that I, I'm actually really thankful for. It's not the perfect technique to start with. It's not a structured class. You know, of course, those are great as well. But to be so young and to be like, okay, what else can my body do? I know I can do this type of figure, but what if I reverse it? Or what if I add, you know, a different flavor, a different, I was just making combinations. And I was like, I don't know, 12 in my room alone. Um, so I'm really, I'm thankful for that type of 
that type of uh, start into this world of really knowing my body first. And I know it sounds crazy, but I think the next year I started like choreographing some belly dance shows for the girls in my school. And now, of course, you know, you probably shouldn't say that. And it's not, uh, you shouldn't be going on stage, you know, as quickly as a choreographer, but I was 14. It was like a school show. And I was like, yeah, let's all do a belly dance number. And so I choreographed for like six or seven girls. Um, and I kept going through, through high school ever since and, and dancing as much as I could. I was a choreographer every year in my high school, which was really fun. And then once I got to college, it totally changed. So, so belly dance really became my life. So it came from this kind of you know, I would say that was the childhood of my belly dance career, this having fun with it, no pressure, just making little silly shows in my school. To when I got to college, I knew, okay, this is what I want to do. Um, and I started a belly dance club in my college, which uh, was an amazing experience. I started with a few other girls. And within the four years, I was like a full-time dancer on a college campus. I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know how looking back that was a thing, but we had over 200 members. It was one of the biggest clubs on campus. Um, I was teaching like three times a week with, you know, extra rehearsals. We were performing as a group multiple times a month. Um, we did our own events. We actually had our own belly dance festival for just college clubs mm. in the area. And we hosted a Marga Mall. It was just kind of a crazy thing. And I was, you know, only 19. And I, I kind of call this like the teenage years of my belly dance career. Like I was still building, still learning, still experimenting to what I wanted to do. Um, and it was an incredible experience. And I, I was choreographing for a group of like 60 at that time, which is uh, that gives me a headache even thinking about it, especially all college kids. <laughs> it was kind of insane. But what was really special to me about those years in college and dancing so much is that I saw the power of the dance. I saw that it wasn't really just about me and the way it affected the other girls around me was extremely special. That's such a like odd time when you're, you know, getting to know yourself and your body and everyone feels kind of awkward. And I, I saw the progression of these young girls in my classes where they would kind of blossom through belly dance. They would come in in the beginning and, and wear like, you know, big sweatshirts and hide in the back. And in a month they were in the front coming with costumes to practice, you know, doing their own solos. I mean, just coming into their own. And I, I started to realize that 19, 20, 21, 22, there's huge power in this and there's huge power in, you know, young women coming together and getting to know themselves but also being vulnerable with each other, using a creative art form to, to feel good and to connect and to make relationships. Um, so that was really huge for me to develop, I guess, my love of this dance from a friendship and from a very kind of safe family vibe to really deep relationships with other girls my age at a vulnerable time um, when we're all kind of young and in college and figuring it out and then moving on to becoming a young adult and, and trying to figure out what it means to be a professional dancer and continuing to learn and change and, and, um, and have different experiences. But I think high being really young, dancing high school and college, um, really shaped me. And I'm really thankful for that, that it kind of built me into the dancer I am. And, um, yeah, it was, it was like the, the pride and joy of my, of my four years was that belly dance club. So you mentioned yeah. that when you came to college, you realized that belly dance, it's what you want to do and uh, like your work, you want to, to have uh, all around it, like all your life. 
How did you envision it from like practical point of view? Did you have any examples of other people working as a ballet dancers, as a full-time ballet dancers, or it just was coming completely like from your, I don't know, inner sensations or feelings? Like, I just want to, how, how was it? Um, it's an amazing question. I wish I had more of a practical understanding. I don't think I did. I think from a young age, I knew no matter what I have to be dancing. And I had this, this kind of odd sense of extreme confidence that no matter what I do, I will be dancing. So there was like less pressure to figure it out. I think, um, when I was young, I would go to these like very intense auditions for like modern dancers. And I was not trained in that. I was just so sure of myself that no, I'm meant, I'm meant to dance too. We're all meant to dance. And I would have this just kind of naive, extreme, in a way, kind of beautiful confidence as a kid of like, you know, this is my calling. So I'm going to figure it out no matter what. So I think I lost a little bit of the practical side, which is unfortunate. Um, I just was set on this is what I want to do. And it took me a long time to realize it was was really belly dance. But um, but when it came to belly dance in college, I yeah, I was I, I knew I, I knew going in, that's what I want to do, because actually the summer of my first year, I went to Israel um, and I ended up staying the whole summer in Israel. And I was like 19 and I ended up volunteering on a farm that was also a dance studio. It was a really kind of unique space that it was in the middle of the of this beautiful valley. It was like an open dance studio where a very famous um, contemporary group would come and rehearse. And so they would also run it as an eco farm and have dance classes. And so I was a volunteer there, super random, very last minute. I was just kind of doing my thing as a 19 year old. And they had a, a dance, a belly dance teacher there. And she was a beautiful dancer who spent a lot of time also in Turkey with some Romani, uh, with Romani communities. And she had a very interesting background. And she just sat me down one day after a class and we were out on this balcony having black coffee. She was smoking a cigarette. Like it was an image from a movie. I still remember it. And she said to me, she was like, you know, you should really do this. Like you have something. Um, I really want to see you go out and, and do something with this dance. And, you know, literally 10 years later, I'm still thinking about this memory. It really touched me because before that I didn't have like a mentor. I didn't have you know, the, the structured classes that most people go through in terms of belly dance. I didn't have the, the usual upbringing of dance. I had the sporadic, you know, after school programs and dancing with friends and making silly shows with my, with my childhood friends. So to hear a dance teacher really say, okay, I see you and I'm, I'm, I'm watching you and I believe in you. I was like, oh, okay, my calling, here we go. And I came back to the campus and it became my life. So I definitely do credit that moment of switching my, my um, vision and yeah, the practical side, mm, I don't know. I don't think I thought about that too much, but because I was just so set on it and I knew it was going to happen no matter what. And if I had to pursue a different career, which I did, you know, um, like full time wise, and I didn't major in dance, I majored in, in something else. I knew dance would always be there though. And even during the rough years where I was working, you know, nine to five and I barely made it to teach my one class a week, because I was so exhausted, I knew it didn't matter. I would, I will get there. I will be a dancer. It will always be my life until I'm, you know, hopefully 90 years old. There's just a sense of that's my way of breathing and living. I know it sounds kind of, uh, you know, dramatic, but I just felt that since a kid, since I was a kid, that even if I have to dance one hour a week, I will dance one hour a week, and it will always be there. So, yeah, the practical stuff, 
Yeah, not too much. Now I have to think about that because I'm older, but <laughs> back then, no. <laughs> no, I was just curious, like, did you dream to be a performer? Did you dream to be a teacher? Did you have any people as examples? Like, oh, like, maybe at that time, because it, it still was like, uh, I don't know how much inspiration you were getting from internet and like seeing people maybe traveling around the world. So, because sometimes uh, these days, young dancers, they inspire to pursue dance career because they see other people doing it. Oh, that's possible. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was curious, like in your example, was it inspiration somewhere from other like, you know, external force, like third person or was it like just dreaming of performing or teaching, but I guess it was just to be related to dance <laughs> that where it was kind yeah. of Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really the performance part, I think if I had to choose because I was so in love with, you know, being on stage and, and sharing that with people. But it's interesting you say that because later on in life I had really had to choose my path because there actually is a lot of directions you can go with belly dance, whether you're a gig dancer, a teacher, festival circuit. And that was a big lesson I had to learn as I progress as a professional of like, okay, you, maybe some can do it all, but for me, I have to focus in and, and choose. So yeah, the practical stuff definitely came later. Um, but at that time I was young. I just wanted to do drum solos. That was like my thing. I had so much energy. <laughs> I wish for those days again, I just, I could do like a half an hour drum solo if people let me. Um, and that's all I wanted to do. So it was, it was a beautiful time. I actually really look back so fondly on that and all that energy and, and hope and positivity. I think it's, it's a beautiful part of youth. It really is. Mm, yeah. And those naive moments, the, those are the best. That's where we, we are really going for it. And uh, sometimes it's better not to know all the rules around. I mean, it's better to mm-hmm. be aware, but at the same time, like psychologically inside us, it sometimes like gives that freedom of like, yeah, why not? Let's just do it. <laughs> it brings that fun. Yeah. Uh, did you ever go for more structured formal dance classes or how did you continue your dance education uh, afterwards? Yeah. Um, so when I was in college, I was, you know, really immersed in it, but I was still in a bubble of like a college campus, which is its own little world. Um, so whenever I would go home to New York city, I would go to the belly queen school, which was run by Keishi Chai, um, in, in, uh, downtown Manhattan. And they had exceptional classes, great, you know, for technique, Um, and I would go every single time I could. And those are my first kind of real classes. And that's what helped me to, you know, I had to, I had to fix a few things. Like I think I had to change my posture and make sure I was safe. And these things that really you can get from a class and experienced teachers. Um, and I think that was huge for me. And that was really great to bring back to what I was sharing with my, with my group. Um, I did a teacher training through them, which was amazing to kind of get the skills of how to break things down, um, make sure I knew all the rhythms and, There's a lot to learn. As much as I love this kind of free-for-all, you know, DIY, do-it-yourself uh, belly dance career, it, it was time for me to start to kind of clean things up a little bit if I wanted to get, you know, if I want to get serious and be responsible for other students um, in a professional sense. So I really... Yeah, I, I use those classes a lot to grow as a dancer. I went to a lot of shows in New York. Um, I did everything I could whenever I was home in New York City. And I'm so thankful for New York City because, you know, a lot of people would come to New York um, and I'd be able to go to a lot of different events when I was home from school. But really, when I w- moved to Boston, which was after um, a year or so after I graduated college, I, I was pushed into more of the, okay, this is this is time to become an artist. This is your time to become 
become who you're meant to be as a dancer, not just, you know, not just a teacher or I'm not sorry, not to say just, but to really who you are as, as a performer and as a dancer, because that's really, I think where my heart lives. Um, and in Boston, there's a really special place called the Middle East nightclub. If anyone's listening from, uh, the East coast, they probably know it. It's a famous restaurant and like kind of concert hall that has had ongoing belly dance since like the seventies and eighties. So it's really beautiful history there of, um, continuously having dancers and live music. And so I moved to Boston and I was able to be a part of this special place that it's really, it made me who I was. It's, it's a restaurant and there's like weekly belly dance classes, but the people who go there, the audience are there to see you as a dancer. It's something I, I never found anywhere else. They're not necessarily coming for the food, no offense to the food or the atmosphere or the, like the aesthetic or the atmosphere, you know, no offense. It's a cool place, but they're coming for the particular dancer. So it's like, oh, Jackie's dancing tonight. And, you know, whoever's dancing tonight, they come for, for her and they come for her artistry. And it's a, a safe place where they're everyone, you know, other dancers are coming to enjoy your art. And even if they're not dancing that night, people are coming to see you. And I felt like, you know, I could fall flat on my face mid-performance and nobody would, would blink an eye. You know, we'd all laugh together, if anything. It's that kind of environment that was so special for a young, a young woman and a young dancer where I could, I could stretch and grow and experiment. Um, and some performances were not my best. I tried things that were probably very odd and, you know, beyond my, my uh, capacity at the time, but it helped me grow so much. I mean, to find a space like that where you can experiment as a performer because I know sometimes in gigs, you want to come and just entertain. And, and, you know, depending on the venue, you're there to really entertain. And here you are too. But in this type of venue, you're there to be you. And that was like kind of the, the number one feeling, the number one priority. So I, I met amazing people. My mentors were really my friends um, who helped shape me, helped teach me. I mean, when I moved the, from Boston, I've never, I never did like a 20-minute set before. The longest I danced was probably four minutes. And they... They had a live band and they were like, are you ready? And I was like, wait, for what? How long am I doing this for? And it's the longest I ever danced in my life at that time because, you know, I came from college and these these quick little shows that we did at school. So it helped me grow up. It really helped me grow up. It pushed me to dance to music that wasn't, you know, the, the craziest drum solo I can find. No, I'm going to dance to a live band with, with like an Armenian style, very different Um and the people, the people were my mentors. The people I think pushed me and the people were created that safe space where, you know, you can develop technique anywhere, but you can only develop your artistry in so many places. And it really takes a good audience and a good atmosphere to give that to a dancer. So I'm, I'm just so thankful for that experience. It's still running today, even post COVID. I, 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 it's amazing to see there's still dancers there. Um, and yeah, I'll always cherish that. And I think that's what really pushed me to be okay, a professional in, in, in that sense, an artist, um, confident in my performing. And it gave me the really first experiences of Tarab, I'd say. Like, I know that's kind of um, dramatic, but even I was so young, but I really did. I felt in that space, in some of my favorite performances that I've done, that everyone stopped in a moment together. That there's moments when I was dancing where the music myself, the entire space just was one, just was completely silent. Um, where all the, like the little kind of chattering on the side or the dishes or, or everything just stopped. And we were all together in a special 
moment that you can't recreate, you can't, you know, go back to, it was just that one particular moment. And I had a lot of those experiences where we all were so connected, um, through dance. And I mean, like what could be better than that? And so I experienced a whole different side of dancing that I never, I never could when I was just doing crazy drum solos at like 19, (laughs) those are good too. But like, this was where I kind of matured Uh into more of a, more of a dancer and an artist. So, yeah. If you could uh, travel back in time and meet uh, Jackie before uh, going on stage for her first show, what what kind of advice would you give her? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, I think, uh, you know, stretch before I just went straight, (laughs) (laughs) I went straight into it. And then now my back hurts even thinking about the things and the moves I did. Um, so definitely like, you know, warm up or something, you know, I don't know what she was doing, but, uh, to enjoy the moment because yeah, it is, I think not saying I'm old, I'm super old now, but like being that young and being that, you know, free of worry and with, you know, doing what you love in a place you love with people you love is such a gift and it goes by so fast. And I'm sure at the moment I was like enjoying it, but thinking, Oh, I have this paper due. And then I, you know, doing this later and, and thinking about all these different things, but being more in the moment, being more present, enjoying that time of the, of the world we were in, because it was kind of before Instagram, before, you know, before we were doing, putting things on our stories backstage, it was, it was such a beautiful time to be young, to be in the moment and to not worry about whatever you're doing, making that a memory for later. You know what I mean? Sometimes I feel, I feel myself kind of getting, Oh, let me take a picture of this. So I have it for later. Let me make sure to get a recording of this performance. So I have it for later. And that was a time when it was just like, what is later? You know, this is now we are in now. And we all felt that way because our phones weren't equipped to do that yet. So it's, what a beautiful time when you think about it. I mean, I love saving memories now. I do love having all these videos, but there's so many performances I'll never see again. I'll never be able to, you know, to go back on my, on my laptop and find, and that's okay. I think they'll live in my, my memory and I'm, I'm happy for that. So I would, I would go back and tell her just, you know, be in the moment, enjoy it. There's, there's kind of like, this is once in a lifetime phase of life and just, you know, keep, keep living it up. I think I'll say that. Mm, that's so beautiful. <laughs> that was unexpected, <laughs> but very beautiful and a great reminder. Well, traveling still back in time, um, I know that also your trips to Israel also shaped and informed your dance experience. Uh, can you tell a little bit about that aspect of your dance uh, journey? <laughs> yeah, no, of course. I love I love thinking about it. So as I grew up, I... Um, you know, had this connection to my family and my family's Israeli and they have a Mizrahi background, Middle East, you know, a, a, an Iraqi Jewish background. It was kind of more in our ancestry. And I can, of course, talk about that later. But I always had this connection with knowing, you know, we were Sephardic, which is another word people use, kind of knowing we weren't European Jewish and knowing we were kind of maybe different and um, feeling that within my family. And whenever I would go to Israel, I would go for the dancing. I, I, I mean, that was my first, that was like number one on my checklist, probably eat some good food first and then see family. Yeah. 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 But that like go and dance right away. I would go to any class I could find even in a random gym. <laughs> I mean, I, I was obsessed with it and I didn't have the words for it then. And I do now. And that it's really cool to think about the, the atmosphere that 
was happening in these classes. And it was a lot of women who were much older than me in these classes who were either from um, different countries in the Middle East or their parents were, or they were born there and came to Israel very young. And they came very dressed up to classes. I remember they weren't even dancing that much. They just like dressed up completely. And it was like a concert for them. Whenever the teacher would put on music in Arabic, they would all be singing and like swaying and like holding each other. It was just a concert. And you would think, you know, young Jackie would be like, what is this? I want to dance. Like I'm here to learn technique, but I was enamored by it. I was obsessed because I saw them light up. I saw them bring out a part of them that maybe they couldn't, you know, connect with a ton. Uh, and the music helped them go back in time. And I just remember thinking this is just so cool. Like I loved it. I loved the music that was in Hebrew because I always felt connected to dance to music in Hebrew, the music in Judeo Arabic. Um, I felt that at home, I've always felt the connection to that from just having it around me. So when I was in Israel, this was like a norm to hear this music. And I just always feel connected to it when I went there to dance. And there's incredible dancers who, because Israel has such um, a Mizrahi influence, which means Jews who have lived in the Middle East for thousands of years, you can go find a teacher who has a Persian background or an Iraqi background or a Moroccan background. And so even in one city like Tel Aviv, you can find this kind of metropolis of influence that is is just really unique and really incredible. So even at a young age, I didn't know that what I was doing and why I loved it so much, but I felt addicted to go back and go learn in Israel as much as I can. Um, I found great teachers and festivals, and I got to even bring a friend from college, which was crazy. She actually happened to be there as well. So a friend from this belly dance club in college, we were dancing together in Israel um, at this festival. So yeah, really beautiful memories that felt very connected to home. And I think definitely made me, led me to the work I'm doing now for sure. And still do. I'm really curious because when we think about ballet dance culture, like first associations comes like Egypt. Then we think about Turkey, mm -hmm. Lebanon, Tunisia, like Morocco, even less, like more, it's like folkloric Moroccan dances, but like because of uh, popular soap opera, it's also associated, like, you know, in people's mind, like, okay, ballet dance, Morocco, yeah. But um, Israel is not something that comes on your mind right away. So I'm really curious, you mentioned that when you, whenever you traveled, you really were going for classes, but how much ballet dance is in the culture of everyday life of people? Because for instance, to compare, like let's say in Ukraine, there is a lot of ballet dance classes, there is a lot of ballet dancers, but it's not part of Ukrainian culture. So there are a lot of dancers, but they kind of form their own community here. So kind of on its own, but it's not part of like, you know, general public day-to-day, -day, I don't know, life and culture. So how is it in Israel? Yeah. Um, I, so, you know, I don't want to be a spokesperson for, you know, belly dance in Israel, but from what I know from a lot of the work I've done and from going there so often, I can, I can say that it is really all over. And I think I would expand belly dance to say, you know, either Mizrahi dance or Middle Eastern dance or folkloric dance. There's Middle Eastern dance, even a part of, you know, the traditional rock sharky, 
in so many places. Um, henna parties are really big. So before a Moroccan or Yemenite or Kurdish Jewish wedding, they have these big ceremonies to bless the couple and, you know, do the henna and they'll hire, they usually always hire a belly dancer. Um, so the dancers I know in Israel have really good, uh, you know, active work life that they're doing a lot of these henna parties. Mimuna is um, a very big yearly party that become very, just became very popular recently where they're going to hire belly dancers. So it's a North African Jewish holiday that happens after Passover. But it's so popular now that like a lot of people go to these parties. So you'll see belly dancers in a family setting in terms of these type of celebrations. You'd see belly dancers in kind of more modern fusions of like an, um, a big concert, you know, like a concert kind of, um, I don't want to say nightclub, but a fusion, uh, you know, Mizrahi rock band, let's say. So you'll have belly dancers that they'll hire to, to be part of the stage. So they're on stage in front of thousands of people. You also have um, the Middle Eastern influence, the Mizrahi influence in um, contemporary dance. So in these beautiful theaters with these, you know, large uh, dance companies that, that the choreographer will add his or her, you know, Moroccan, Yemenite, uh, whatever it is, influence into contemporary dance and dance to Arabic music or, or Judeo-Arabic music. So you see the influence and maybe it's just, you know, straight hiring a belly dancer or the big, you know, Elat festival that Orit Matasphere does. Um, so there is a belly dance scene, but then there's also dance in a cultural, religious, um, just traditional sense in all these other pockets of life. There's also traditional groups. There's um, like folkloric groups that really keep Yemenite Jewish tradition alive um, and through dance, for example. Or there's a Kurdish Jewish dance group in Jerusalem, and they have a yearly festival that they do, and they bring out all their dance troops. So you can really, if you start to look for it, which is like my life now, which is only, which is why I know it, is that there's a, a lot of dance happening for different reasons. But um, just going back to your, your main question about belly dance, there's tons of classes because like I said, half of the population of Israel comes from the Mizrach, the East, the, the Middle Eastern Oriental Jewish history. Um, so they have that background. So a lot of women are looking for these classes, you know, maybe they want to become professionals, but it's their kind of, you know, hobby or a thing to do with their, with their girlfriends after work. And so you can actually find a lot of, of just classes to go and kind of participate in. There's also performance groups, there's festivals, there's kind of everything. I don't know if it's known a lot. Like, I don't know if it's as well known in the belly dance world besides, you know, the Allot Festival is very famous. Um, I think you have to go there to kind of explore and realize, you know, how many dance schools there are, how many incredible professionals. I mean, I could just name a few. Um, I'm a big fan of Na Nava Aharoni. I don't know if you know her. She's a Persian Jewish dancer in Israel. She's incredible. And she travels, you know, around the world or read, you know, you've interviewed, interviewed yeah, her really here before. Yeah. She travels. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's big names and there's also dancers that um, not many people would know about, but are dancing, you know, almost every day at different family gatherings and parties and, and, uh, having classes. So I think it's more underground, but it's definitely there for sure. Can you also give, since you mentioned like a couple of dances, can you also give some suggestions for people to look for musicians? Because I have no idea. I don't know anything about like Hebrew music that may be appropriate, like for dancing or something like similar to ballet dance. Or uh, you mentioned uh, Judo Arabic. Uh, 
uh, kind of music song. Mm-hmm. Like, can you give a little, like, maybe, I don't know, some suggestions for your famous singers, artists, composers, just for people to know, you know, like, kind of try to familiarize themselves with this part of music culture? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a hard, it's it's complex, just like the Arabic music world. You can find um, yeah, obviously <laughs> classical music. Yeah, there's a lot. So you can find classical music. You can find full bands for different regions. So maybe it's more Andalusian style. Maybe it's uh, you know an Iraqi Jewish band. It can kind of go on in what region you're looking for, or you can find Mizrahi music now. The kind of modern version is like a lot of pop, a lot of kind of upbeat fun has like that I don't want to say techno but has that modern sound um, which is really fun for classes Um, and you can find a lot of also just traditional music that come from maybe a more like religious poetry so it really depends like what you're looking for I'd say for belly dance though there's um, classical music that I think would be amazing um I'm trying to. I'm trying to just think off just the top your, of my your head. Just your favorite. I don't know. But can be singers. Can be compositions. Like uh, just some of your favorite ones. Like one or two. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I really love. There's two uh, Moroccan Jewish singers that I really love. Um, one is Neda El Kayam. She recreates a lot of Moroccan Jewish uh, music in a very modern, beautiful way. Another one is Lala Tamar, and they both kind of infuse you know, their Moroccan heritage with a very modern, fresh vibe. Um, So I really, I definitely recommend those two female artists. If you're looking for something more like rock-based, just a kind of vibe to, I love Dudu Tassa. He's actually an Iraqi-Israeli musician. Um, And there's a a Moroccan band called the Piyut Assemble, and I can give all this to you if you want to put it in the the notes, but um, they have beautiful liturgy um, music, so like poetry that's Moroccan Jewish, that is very ancient, that they make into this beautiful kind of modern uh, music as well. So yeah, there's a ton. And then there's also, if you just search like Mizrahi music, in Israel today, like in YouTube, you'll you'll find a lot of like the newer stuff. But also, Sarit Haddad is very famous. Um, she's kind of been around forever, and and so that's a good one too. But yeah, there's a million, there's a ton. Ah, thanks for suggestions. Uh, also, I kind of want to almost like sort of like a back up <laughs> a little bit because we already went in the conversation discussion of this topic. But um, honestly, for me. Uh, the term Mizrahi dance culture, it was completely new. I discovered it by discovering your Mizrahi um, dance archive. I was like, what's that? Like, I was familiar, like, okay, Sephardic Jewish culture, um, Ashkenazi Jewish culture, but then suddenly it's like, oh, Mizrahi, like, what's that? And I'm pretty sure, among our listeners, I'm not alone. <laughs> so can you, uh, in general words, a little bit um, like describe, for instance, what is Mizrahi, like um, culture, uh, dance, music, what, for instance, would be difference between, like, I don't know, Sephardic Jewish culture and specifically, like, in terms of dance and music? Uh, can you give a little, you know, like... Uh, better understanding because I'm pretty sure for many people it's completely new information and there's like what what are we talking about (laughs) yeah of course oh my god and don't feel bad you are not alone it is relatively a new term and even within my own community within a Jewish community people are still learning this as well so like do not feel bad for anyone listening it is 
it is super okay to be totally new at this, but Mizrahi, Mizrach means East. I think I said this before. So Mizrahi Jews means Eastern Jews, sometimes called Oriental Jews. And we're talking about Jews who um, have stayed in the Middle East. So originally Jews are from Judea, which is the modern land of Israel. And during kind of our thousand years of existence, we've been displaced and scattered all over the world. So a lot of the time there's a misconception that Jews really only come from Europe. And that's totally you know, reasonable because in, at least in North America, most Jews here do have a European background because that's where they immigrated to is the U.S. But Jews have really lived all over. And I'm talking about, you know, Argentina, India, Iraq, Morocco, Ethiopia, China. Jews have lived all over the world. And so we're talking about thousands of years and developing kind of their own subcultures within these areas. But when I talk about Mizrahi Jews or the word Mizrahi, I'm talking about Jews who left Judea, usually most likely during the destruction of the first temple. So we're going back to 6th century BCE, like a really long time ago, over 2000 years ago. And they went to places like Morocco, Yemen, um, Egypt. So think North Africa, Middle East, Central Asia, all the way to Iran. So that whole scope of land is what's considered Mizrahi Jews. And so they all have their own story. They all have their own you know, history of how, let's say, they were treated in those lands. Um, a lot of up and down, a lot of developing their own languages, cultures, customs, the list goes on. Um, but what they share as a common thread in terms of their history is that, you know, A, they've lived there for thousands of years, like 2,000 years in, in these regions, and B, they all are completely almost gone to, to this day. So in one generation, um, in the middle of the 20th century, most of these Jews were either displaced, um, you know, kicked out, expelled, sometimes called the forgotten refugees, um, we're talking about almost 1 million refugees that happened during the middle of the 20th century. And there's a lot of different, you know, political reasons that what was happening during that time after World War II, the whole world is kind of shifting. Um, some Jews in those regions decide to leave, you know, willingly. They were feeling unsafe or they were feeling like they weren't belonging anymore. And some were violently kicked out. So it's important to kind of understand this, this pain that does come from the Mizrahi experience that we're talking about people who've lived in a region for so long, who felt really a part of that culture and that was their home um, and had to to remake their home elsewhere in one generation. So most Mizrahi Jews went to Israel, um, also the U.S., Canada, some other places. But the term Mizrahi really does give a name for that experience. It's for Jews who never left the Middle East, who have stayed in that region. Um, and so Sephardic is what most people know, and that's totally fine. It's usually used to describe a lot of Mizrahi communities, um, but really Sephardic means Spain. Sephrad means Spain. And it's really to, to define Jews who lived in Spain or the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal, and were kicked out during the Spanish Inquisition. So for Mizrahi Jews, a lot of them don't have that history. They never ended up in Spain. Let's say they were Kurdish Jews for 2,000 years and had no connection to, to Spain. So it's a good, I think it's a really good term to give for people who have a different history. Everyone chooses kind of their own. It's, you know, I'm not, I would never tell a, a person or a family to, 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 to choose one term. Everyone kind of goes what they're comfortable with. But you can also have, I know it's confusing, but you can also have a Sephardic Mizrahi Jew. So when the Jews of Spain were kicked out, of, I, know, I see your face, it's like, oh God, this is getting crazy. But when the Jews of, were, of Spain were kicked out, they went to places like Morocco, Turkey, Lebanon. So the Sephardic Jews came to 
Morocco and can be considered Sephardic and Mizrahi. So that's kind of the gist, I guess, of of the two histories and why those terms are different but are interchangeable. Um, and, and again, people kind of choose their own. In terms of the music and dance, what I look for and what I'm really interested in is what folkloric dances of the region are specifically Jewish. What makes how are the Jewish people of these regions dancing, and what makes it different because they were Jewish? Um, a great example of that is Jews in Yemen. They had a lot of restrictions on them. They were called dimi, which is like a second-class citizen. So they had a lot of restrictions on their life, and that affects their music, which affects their dance. So their dance is strikingly different from their neighbors. And that's what I'm like obsessed with, <laughs> for lack of a better term. I love to find what is particularly Jewish of, of these dances. And maybe the dances aren't super different. Like the Jews in Morocco, their dances could be very similar to their neighbors. But they have particular holidays or or uh, traditions or festivals or music that is particularly Jewish. And so the use of their dance becomes a little bit different. So that's how I define Mizrahi dance. In terms of Mizrahi music, that's a little bit you know easier if the music is created by uh, you know a, a Jewish singer and maybe has Jewish um, elements to it in terms of what they're singing about, or maybe it's for a particular holiday, or maybe it's from a religious poetry, or maybe it's for like a Jewish saint in Morocco. There's all these different reasonings of what can make it particularly Jewish, but um, that's how I would define Mizrahi music and dance. And in terms of, yeah, like what, like Mizrahi music as a whole, um, there's just so much, there's just so much diversity. There's just so much, there's so much into it. So I, I tried to look for what makes it like uniquely Jewish. And that's why I created the archive, which is because I wasn't finding any of this info, like anywhere in one place. And that was really hard for me because I feel like this is a part of, you know, my heritage and, and I was so interested in it and I wanted to dive deep, but there was nowhere for me to go and find this information. And being a dancer, the dance part was everything. And, and I knew it was a huge part of these cultures, but why wasn't there any, you know, research or or just a place to, to dive deeper? Because we have great information for um, Mizrahi and Sephardic food and, you know, language and music and all these other elements of culture, but dance was completely missing from all the conversations. And so I started to because of COVID, I mean, this is the one, you know, silver lining of COVID, but I had a lot more time all of a sudden. And I started to just do hours of like digging. I went through just these black holes of YouTube to find whatever I could. Uh, I would find, you know, a sentence from a book here and a video over there and an academic paper that references something else. And I would pull all these pieces together. And I just thought to myself, you know, other people shouldn't have to do this, and and especially the younger generations. I want there to be somewhere where people can just go, and if they're interested in Mizrahi history, music, and dance, it's all one place. So that is why I created the Mizrahi Dance Archive, which is it's just a web it's a website, but it the idea of it is to con continue to grow, where it holds all the information I've been finding, but also people can add in their personal stories or their family's um, stories or videos or whatever they have, so that it continues to grow and kind of be a source um, for people. And it's super exciting because there's nothing like it before. Um, so a lot has come through that and I've kind of used it as a tool for education because what you said in the beginning was so true. Not many people know even this term or this history or, you know, these untold stories. And so what better way to educate, to bring people in through dance, um, especially a dance that's so upbeat, that's so centered around celebration, um, I mean, what better way to, to, to educate? So this Mizrahi Dance Archive has become a way for me to kind of, 
you know, use it to reach out to other people and, and professional dancers. I've been so, I've been so thankful to see, um, dancers in our community, like really be interested in this. I thought it would be something that's just like, eh, you know, kind of out there and whatever, but I've had a, a lot of professional dancers come to some of these workshops, um, and really have an open mind. And I'm so thankful. And I think, I think it's important. I think it's important for professional dancers because we have, I think we have this new wave of understanding that we're more than dancers, that we have become a little bit of like cultural ambassadors, that when we go out and dance, you know, we're representing a huge region and and a lot of cultures and belly dance kind of encompasses a lot of folklore now. So we are, we're responsible for a big land, a big, a big region. And I think knowing the history of those lands and the people is really important. And and the minorities that also make up those lands, because it's not just the Jews. There's also, you know, the Kurds and the Yazidis. There's there's more, the, the Arab Christians, there's more in these regions that make it so diverse and so beautiful. And to me, I only see the positive of showing that and bringing that more into education of dancers, because we do pride ourselves on being these kind of, you know, cultural ambassadors. And I think it's, it, there's no downside to learning even more about this rich history of the land. So I hope this this gives a little bit of that to, to yes, dancers out absolutely. there. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. And um, it's interesting when I was doing my uh, research and I put Mizrahi uh, dance uh, in Google and I clicked the first link that appeared. I was like, oh, that's Mizrahi Dance Archive. <laughs> Oh, good. Yay. Yeah. Thanks, Google Analytics. It's also very, it was very interesting to hear how you mentioned about Moroccan culture. And you mentioned that, oh, Jewish dance culture, it's very similar to Moroccan dance. And I remember my kind of like confusion when I first time landed on your Instagram. It was one of the videos, like something was about uh, Moroccan dance, but it was like, oh, Mizrahi uh dance was uh written and i was like well i'm not expert in mizrahi dance obviously and i'm also not that big expert in moroccan dance but i was like that for me looks just like a moroccan dance like i don't understand what's the and then i remember again like doing research and uh, looking actually through mizrahi dance archive i saw your video of moroccan jewish wedding dance and I was like, oh, that's really different. Because to me, it had a lot of flamenco moves mixed with Moroccan, like all those arms, all those kind of like skirt or slash, like not really skirt, kaftan, like movements or like reminding of movements of skirts. But it also has movements of hips that are Moroccan dance, like from Moroccan like dance culture. So it was really interesting to see that kind of mixture together. And uh, I guess it's um, one of the also examples of mixing cultures. I guess it comes from like mm. Sephardic influence, uh, I assume now. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, you, you actually hit it on the on the nail. Yeah, exactly. It's also interesting that um, you mentioned that in Mizrahi dance usually is focused around celebration. So it's mostly, as I understand, if I understand correctly, it's like a social dance, or is there an element of professional performance in the culture of Mizrahi dance? Yeah. Oh my God. Those are so many great points. And just to go back a little bit about the Moroccan Jewish dance. So I, I tried to be very careful of what I call, oh, this is a Jewish dance, or this is 
um, you know, under the terms of Mizrahi, because yeah, it could look super similar. Um, if I call something Mizrahi, that means that there is that Jewish element. Maybe it's a Jewish Moroccan song. Um, and because the moves are so similar between communities, the movements, you know, will have the same hips and the same arms and kind of similar, but I'm trying to give like the spotlight to the Jewish aspects of it, because in terms of celebrating, in terms of Morocco and the Jewish community there, the, the dancing is very similar to, to their, their Muslim neighbors. Um, However, that Sephardic influence, which is another category within like the bigger umbrella of Mizrahi dance, is really its own thing because, like I said, the Jews came from Spain. They went to mostly to Fez and they created a new Moroccan Sephardic um, culture that never existed before. And they even created a new language called Hakatiya, which is a music, which is a mix of Arabic, Hebrew and Ladino or Jewish Spanish. So you can see how even through a language, an entire new culture derived. And for me, that song or that um, finding that element was so important to, to represent Mizrahi dance that, that is so unique and it's so different with its own, just being its own thing. It's a, a song that probably comes from medieval times. You know, they left Spain in the 1400s. So this song is probably even before then. And they brought it all the way to Morocco. And they would use this song before the bride went to a mikvah. And a mikvah is a specific Jewish ritual, which women do every month, going into natural waters, kind of like a cleanse. And they do it before the wedding as well. So it's the, the ceremony is particularly Jewish. The roots of the song are Jewish. And the song is also telling the dancer what to do. The lyrics are telling the dancer to kind of pantomime this very interesting um, story of making bread. It's telling her to jump in the water. It's telling her to learn how to dance. I mean, the, the lyrics are, are, are really incredible. It's almost like preparing the bride to get a few like, you know, in, innuendos of what to expect for marriage, whatever. I can go down a deeper, uh, a deeper path on that, but it's, I wanted to recreate it. And that was a big part of this Mizrahi dance archive. I didn't want to just be, you know, a piece of history or like a, a living history book. I wanted to add more to the next generations to kind of reimagine or recreate what these dances could have been because there was no YouTube in, you know, 1492 or whatever. So I'm trying to use my dance background to re-envision what these historical Mizrahi dances could be. And so I put in, I mean, you, you hit it. You knew exactly what I was doing. I put in... Um, Moroccan moves. I was I've been taking flamenco for a while here, um, and I, I recreated the dress of of specific Sephardic Moroccan Jewish women, and I danced in front of a river, which is what the song is about. And I so I tried to do my best to recreate what it could have been, based on the history and the knowledge of of the women of that time. Um, so I'm so glad you pointed that out. I just wanted to be clear of like, yeah, some of it will look exactly, you know, very similar, but it'll have, for me, I have to have the Jewish aspect. I wouldn't just call something Mizrahi, like it'll have to have the music or, you know, the lyrics or for a specific music, uh, sorry, Jewish event or the Sephardic Moroccan piece, which is that, you know, really coming from this rich, particular Jewish culture. Uh, and sorry, the second question. But this, is, this, the, is this something that like it exists today, like this dance? So like as a part of like wedding uh, culture procession, or is it something that used to be in the past? And now like, we are trying sort of to recreate uh, like this history of dance for this specific. Like, it exists in the social uh -huh. Yeah, no, it exists in the social sense. So what I was wearing, you'll still see brides wear that. You'll still see them come being lifted up. You know, if you've ever seen Moroccan weddings, lifted up in those entrances, you'll see them in the hands when they dance and the parties and the hips. And 
and you'll definitely see it in the social sense. And that's why I'm trying to bring it to more of the artistic performance aspect because so much has been lost, um, especially, you know, groups of people that were moving from with, with, you know, when you're moving in, in kind of a violence kind of times in, in history, you can only carry with you so much. So, so much of the dance has definitely been lost. And that's why I'm working so hard to try like pick the little pieces that I can if they don't exist as much, then what can we do to recreate them so they're not completely and totally, you know, out of our history in a few generations? Um, so I can pick what I can in terms of the social dance. So definitely you can find it in in that. Or I've been trying to interview a lot of older women who come from this background and get their memories and see what they what they remember. Um, and yeah, it's a lot of work, but I I really don't want what we do have to disappear. That's mm. really important to me. Um, yeah, yeah, because a lot, so uh, you're right, a lot has. Yeah, that's so, just a huge work, and uh, yeah, it's it's a really great thing that you're trying to put it all together and to save and preserve, because not only to preserve for future generations, but even to spread information today, because like this for me was completely unexpected to see like, oh, this combination and usually it's kind of flamenco, but it's kind of Moroccan and it looks sort of like natural together. It, it kind of like, it works. Uh, and uh, <laughs> that was completely unexpected surprise. So I really highly encourage, I will definitely put linked in the show notes to Yomas Rahi archive, uh, dance archive. I suggest everyone to go through each page. There's a lot of um, demonstrations, music, dance, uh, and it's kind of like divided by regions. But the second question that uh, I was asking is, is there an element of professional performance or someone doing the role of professional performers in Mizrahi dance culture? Or is it all like social and around celebrations, but more like as a social dance culture? Yeah, no, thank you for reminding me. That's an amazing question. So there is history of that performance aspect or really revering dancers in different cultures. One I could think of is in Yemenite Jewish dance, that it's actually separated between the men's dance and the women's dance. And for men, they use dance for a spiritual purpose. They use dance to connect to a higher power. Um, and they, the men who would dance the best were really revered in their in their society. And of course, that's kind of a mixed, a mixed bag of emotions like like dancers everywhere kind of have the back and forth of uh people love the entertainment but is it is it really loved completely but for them it was a skill that they showed and it was a little bit of competition of who's going to show the best skill and and for women as well women were a little bit different they actually had to sing dance and improvise the words that they were singing all together so they had to be like really impressive but these people that were considered the the best at the, these skills were really um, wanted at every ceremony, at every gathering, were kind of high esteemed, I guess you can call it the, the historic performers of that time. Um, so there definitely is, you know, a place for, I would say in Yemenite Jewish culture and in, in Yemenite Jewish history, there is, you know, really admiring dancers in a professional sense. Maybe they're not getting paid, but you admire their skill and you really think, wow, okay, that's important for our, for our community. Um, and then in North Africa, this is something I haven't talked about today as much, but besides social dance and the Sephardic Moroccan culture, there's also a deep history of healing dance. So in Morocco, there's Ganawa music and dance, and then in, in um, Tunisia, there's Stambali or Rababia. 
And so Jews participated in both and actually Jews had a really big role in the Tunisian version. Um, and so there's always a leader in these kind of healing dance ceremonies and they're usually a woman, especially looking at Tunisia, there's a woman who, uh, you know, would bring everyone to her home and kind of create this festive atmosphere, but watch over the person getting healed who was dancing and kind of be the professional person in terms of the dance in that room. She knew the ceremony. She knew the order of things. Um, similar to czar, you know, rituals in Egypt, you can think of it like that, the woman who's really the professional in this field. So that's another example of, you know, a dance being revered in terms of having the power to heal people mentally, spiritually, physically, whatever it is. Um, and there's actually quotes of women who moved to Israel from Tunisia and, you know, were so used to Simbali, this ritual healing dance that they didn't want to go to do doctors when they got there. They're just like, no, I need this. I need this ceremony, you know, so very, um, a deeper meaning in terms of dance, not just to be the performer, not just to celebrate, but also in your most vulnerable, vulnerable moments in life, um, dances there. And, and sorry, just a little quick side note. I love that they shared this with their Muslim neighbors. I think it's an amazing example of not only do Jews and Muslims dance in a similar way when they're in the happiest moments of life, but they also go to dance and use dance in a similar way when they're maybe in their lowest. And what a human, beautiful realization of how people are really so similar at the end of the day um, that we're both using this art form or this this deep physical human connection in our highest and our lowest moments. So anyway, side moment of that. But going back to um, professionals in the in the Mizrahi dance history, also in Uzbekistan. So there was um, there's a big you know I mean dance even today in Bukharian, which is you know the Bukharian Jews is, is the terminology for for Jews from Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan. And even today, dance is center of their life. They will find any excuse to have dance in their world. I mean, it could be someone's birthday, it could be a holiday, it could be bar mitzvah, whatever. They are incredible with keeping their dance as a part of their their constant life. Um, I grew up with this community, and I just I feel I just they're they're amazing, and they really kept their culture so rich and vibrant. But historically, when they were in Uzbekistan, they would have a leader. Um, called a Sozanza, and she would be the ceremony guider, but a professional dancer and a professional singer. And she would bring in um, a, a group of, of Jewish women to dance. And they were the top of what they do. And so that would be in any kind of life cycle ceremonies. And they would have music that was specifically Jewish. And they would have ceremonies that were specifically Jewish. And they would bring in music and dance to kind of guide the bride or guide the mother who, you know, mother to be or Whatever it was, they would bring in music and dance to honor those moments. And they'd have to be professionals because, you know, they want it to be good. So those are just three examples of, in history, how much um, dance was revered in terms of, of Mizrahi, Mizrahi dance. But also today, like I was saying, in Israel, there's it's everywhere. You can really see it in, in groups, um, professional groups, professional troops that are all over the country. As Israel really started to form and create this, this culture, um, Mizrahi dance was a huge part of Israeli folk dance. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but they really use a lot of elements from Yemenite Jewish dance, from all of these Mizrahi communities to try to create something new to bring all the people together. So Mizrahi dance has really flowed into the professional sense even today. Um, and has been on stage and has been used by co top choreographers. And yeah, you, you can see the history, how important dancers were. And until today, dancers are still kind of all over, um, mm. all over the country. So, yeah. 
Oh wow, that's so interesting! Like we kind of talked uh, all over the region about Morocco, about <laughs> Tunisia, about Uzbekistan, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure like uh, dancers are dying to hear. Okay, what about Egypt? <laughs> How was uh, Mizrahi culture, dance culture, and Egyptian dance culture were connected or not connected? Like how? What was actually happening in Egypt? Because any in any case, in mind of ballet dancers, like the ballet dance center is in Egypt, although it's way bigger region that has ballet dance as a part of its tradition. But still, by default, we kind of come back like, oh, Egypt. So uh, in terms of Mizrahi dance culture in Egypt, uh, what was actually happening there and how it evolved this time? Yeah, that's an amazing question. And so that's kind of what's hard about being the the one person to do all this, to, to collect all this research is that some countries like, you know, have been really hard for me to find information that weren't carried over, that weren't documented, um, that I'm trying to really do my own, my own digging and uh, interviewing and all this stuff to find more. So Egypt has been a hard one for me to find maybe other either ritual dances or particular dances that the Jews were doing. However, it's cool to see the Jewish um, belly dancers like the Gamal twins or Jamal twins. I don't know if you've seen the, the two twin dancers. They actually had this kind of secret Jewish identity um, which is really cool. Leila Murad, which was a famous singer, was Jewish. And so, and there was a lot of Egyptian Jewish musicians. And so the thing about um, Jews in the Middle East is that they were very involved, for the most part, in music. They were really admired as kind of the famous musicians of, of classical music, of, of Egypt, of Iraq, of Morocco, of Uzbekistan. I mean, they were considered masters of a lot of their um, instruments. And so I can find a lot more of music and how that's influenced, um, you know, Egyptian history. But dance has been really hard for me to find like specific you know, ritual dances like, like in, in Morocco or in Yemen. But I do love to see the belly dancers um, of that time. I, I do love to see, you know, people who, at least communities now who have Egyptian Jewish communities who have kept the belly dance in their world. So that's something that gives me a glimpse of hope that I, I will be able to find more because it is still very much alive today of Egyptian Jewish communities holding belly dance in their in their world as much as they can. Actually, when I was a kid, um, my some of my best friends growing up, there are three sisters and they're Egyptian Jewish. And their mom credits me dancing now because she would show us moves in their living room all the time. And we would dance like Sheik Shak Shok and all. I didn't even know what Sheik Shak Shok was at the time. I was like, what is this? But um, it's, it's a cool reminder of, you know, how much it is a part of that culture as well, as much as they hold on to belly dance in terms of, of their life. And it gives me hope that there's more to find. So I will get back to you. Hopefully, I'll, I'll I'll dig a few, few more, you know, things and find some more. But but yeah. Oh, absolutely! But thank you for sharing. You shared so much already, and the project that you put together—it's really amazing. I would really highly encourage. Once again, I already said it, but for all our listeners, do check Mizrahi Dance Archive because it's uh, jewels of information about parts of the culture that we are not that much familiar like as belly dancers we learn folklore of like different countries but this chapter kind of like is not uh, a mainstream to think about even so i highly encourage and thank you so much for putting it all together 
and it's so easy to navigate and you can see by different like countries and each country has some information about uh, Mizrahi uh, dance and music and history uh, of community in general so it's uh, really easy to get information because of you now <laughs> so thank you so much for <laughs> for doing it and for putting it together and the, the link to the website will be definitely in the show notes and also i want to kind of come back uh, uh, to to you and to your dance journey so for you like you started Mizrahi dance archive recently like during the lockdown period so it's like less than two years old Mm -hmm. at this point but uh how is your dance journey um developing now i know right now it's a very tough and straight and weird as we were saying weird <laughs> times uh but overall like um crossing the line of defining like uh, yourself professional dancer and going through many different things and going also through through lockdown and uh, all the craziness right now uh how is your does your life dance life looks like do you have any events projects uh, things to share maybe with our listeners or any dreams uh, or plans that you kind of want to send to your universe <laughs> and to share with us <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. It's something I think about all the time. I think what I said earlier when I was younger and and not, you know, worrying about anything and all that, it was it was a good time to have that experience. But now I feel so much more focused and more, you know, like I really found what I was meant to do, I think, in life. And it feels like a, you know, a great, a great feeling to have. Um and, and I know sometimes it sounds weird, like, okay, Jews are such a small part of the of the world. We're such a small community. You know, I'm American. I speak English. I live in North Carolina. I mean, it seems, I'm sure for some people, super random. Why do I care about this? Um, why am I so into it? And and I got an amazing message. I think something beautiful happened when I put out this archive. I started getting a lot of messages from other Jewish belly dancers um, who were messaging me and saying, wow, I can't believe you're, you know, you're so openly Jewish uh, doing all this. Like, it's incredible to see. I wish I had this earlier in my dance career or just kind of sending me encouragement. But one girl, I'll never forget it. She said, um, when I see you dance, I feel like it makes your ancestors happy. And I thought that was just so sweet that like, yeah, it is super weird. I am I am American. I am like really kind of delving back into my own family's long, long, long history. But it feels like, you know, if I don't do it, kind of who will? And what if it was reversed? What if, you know, three or four generations down the line, your kids lived in a different country, spoke a different language and didn't even know your name? And so I think about that a lot, that like this kind of work you know, do I miss doing crazy drum solos all the time and, and going to festivals and all that? I really do. But also this work gives me a different sense of purpose and a different sense of connection to something that, you know, there's a long lineage of women dancing in our history. And I feel every day more and more connected to that or uncovering stories that were kind of hidden under a rock before. So I do love just straight rock sharky, you know, like I, I love shabby music. I love Sadie. I love all of these things. And, and yeah, you're right. During COVID, during this weird time, I, I think I feel like I took a break and I went a whole different direction. I focused more on, on reading and sitting and, and researching and doing moves and doing music that I would never delve into 
otherwise. And it really pushed me in a different direction. Um, and I feel myself still kind of living those two. I think you can live those two personalities because Mizrahi dance to me falls under the folklore of the Middle East and, um, it all, it all goes together. And, and I, I, a part of the archive, what I was saying before is to recreate a lot. And so the projects I really love to do is re-envision or reimagine. And one, one project I did during like the craziest part of lockdown was doing a kind of golden era rock sharky to an old Jewish Iraqi orchestra and trying to re-envision, okay, if there was a, when there was a dancer back then, she was doing, you know, rock sharky to this beautiful classical music. I mean, what else would she do? And I was trying to copy a lot of that like golden era flair and costuming and, and, and really working on like, what would she, that Jewish dancer to this Jewish Iraqi music, what would she do? Um, so those projects really excite me. I love to focus on that in terms of my own art artistry, but also the other piece of that of what I'm doing now is a lot of education. So a lot of, um, you know, lectures and presentations for different organizations, different uh, universities, um, a lot of Jewish communities have been asking for, for different, um, presentations because yeah, a lot of even Jewish communities don't even know about Mizrahi heritage. So it's a good time for, it's a good so, uh, tool for me to go and, and teach, um, which has really been nice. I've gotten a few, um, hosts who have been interested in specific areas. Right now I'm doing a series on just the spiritual dances of Mizrahi culture. So working on, um, how these cultures used healing, you know, through dance, which has been really interesting. I had a group that asked about Mizrahi dance and birth. And, you know, that was super, whoa, <laughs> that was new for me. That was, that really delved me into even more research and even more uh, places I've never been before in terms of dance. So to answer your question, I'm doing a lot of, you know, demonstrations, performances, uh, and lectures online, but I'm also trying to make sure I keep myself you know, creatively and artistically moving and growing at the same time. Um, I'm really trying to use so social media as much as I can. It's been a great way to connect with with other dancers to share this dance, but also to show it in a modern way. I think that's really important to make it relevant and new. So I kind of feel myself split between now a little bit of an educator, always a dancer, performer, um, and, and still not losing that rock sharky, you know, root and piece of who I am, especially as hopefully things open up, I'm hoping, and we get back to those big, you know, festivals and events. I, I can't wait for that again. So I don't feel like I've lost a part of my original belly dance world. I feel like I just gained this other piece that is, you know, a part of, of who I am. Um, and, and I hopefully will always be. And then there's one more part in terms of what's happening next. I haven't like announced this anywhere or like told a lot of people. So you're first, but, um, I am going to Tel Aviv to do some of my own research of these kind of forgotten films of Mizrahi dance. When the Mizrahi immigrants first came to Israel, there was some documentation of them. So I'm going there for my own research, which is really exciting. Um, for a dancer to say even these words is super crazy. Like me researching, what am I, what's going on here? Uh, it's, it's a whole new world for me, but I, like you said, it's important to, to put it in one place and be the person to hold it in history because otherwise I don't want a, a younger dancer, you know, 50 years from now getting discouraged and being like, Oh, you know, I can't find what I'm looking for. And so it gives me a lot of, a lot of motivation to keep going. And if any viewers are interested in seeing 
some online events because right now everything's still pretty much online. I'm in um, two big Hanukkah shows coming up. One is with the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, an organization called J Arts, and they have eight international women who are artists doing music, dance, cooking, all this great stuff. Um, And so we're presenting different pieces for, for the the holiday of Hanukkah. Um, and then there's another event also online called Eid al-Banat, so a festival of daughters. It's a North African Jewish holiday that falls on Hanukkah. And we're celebrating women uh, and we have music and dance and a cooking class and all this great stuff. So if anyone's interested, I have it all on my Instagram and my website. Um, and I hope you'll join me because that's the one good part of having everything online. We can all be connected literally everywhere in the world. So Yeah, that's true. I will definitely put all links to social media in the notes so our listeners can easily connect to your social media and website and follow all the news and uh, new exciting researches. And congratulations with... Um, um following your heart and uh, yes documentation (laughs) is important but uh, i think what is uh, even more important is really be true to yourself and not being afraid to follow wherever our soul and heart calls us and i can see and feel how passionate you are about like doing this like research and uh, digging into this topic so uh thank you and congratulations about that (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And uh, uh, one more time before I ask our final question, I really sincerely want to thank you for sharing, for doing this work, for sharing this work and research on the website and here on the podcast with us and taking time. Today we actually recorded on Thanksgiving Day in US. <laughs> so thank you for taking time on this day to be with us and share all this knowledge and information, which is, I'm absolutely sure, will be very new to many, many dancers. And it's really great and uh, amazing to have such passionate researchers like you who help us to discover more and to educate uh, uh, on the subject even further. So thank you so much for that. (laughs) Oh, thank you. And thank you. I I hope you get this enough because your podcast has given me so much inspiration. And what I was saying before about focusing on what I want to do, I learned so much through your work and through the like variety of teachers you've had here and people who have done research or, or focus more on being a, a teacher or the festival world, or, I mean, you just have such an array of experiences. And I, I think I've been like your number one fan, not to be creepy, but I've probably listened to every single episode <laughs> and I learned so much. And I know I said this earlier, but especially during COVID, you, I, I hope you know how much you gave to the community when we were all alone and stuck inside and we lost, you know, we were stripped down of what makes us dancers. Um, and having this podcast during that time, hearing, you know, these professionals all around the world being like, yeah, I'm also dancing in my kitchen. I'm miserable. Like that was huge. So thank you so much for everything you do. And, um, this podcast is is amazing and I'm just I'm super honored and thankful because it's Thanksgiving. I'm super thankful to even be here. So oh, thank you much so love. much for such <laughs> kind words and it's uh, such a like huge reward to hear this kind of words and to hear and meet people who literally listen in for, for, for the podcast from the beginning of its creation. I can't believe it's like four years already. So thank you so mm-hmm. much for, for sharing this. And as our, not only guest, but regular listener, you probably know what's coming up (laughs) 
And I do. I do. <laughs> I would like to summarize our conversation with our traditional question, which I am very happy and honored to ask you. And it sounds like this. What makes you fall in love with belly dance again and again that you keep doing it for so many years? Oh, I love that question. Um, of course, I think like most people, I have to say the music. I know that's probably the most popular answer because that is the heart, like literally the heartbeat of what we do. I think though, if I think, if I pull a little bit deeper, it's that feeling of tarab. So I, I, I know most dancers know what that is, but that feeling of ecstasy or total um, presence in the moment when you dance, that's something I, I feel really blessed to think I understand what it means, maybe not even fully, but the feeling of performing, the adrenaline you get mixed with, you know, your mind, especially for those who love improving, when your mind is totally blank, when you sometimes I feel like I even black out when I when I perform. And those are the best dances when you leave yourself and you become one with the music when the music speaks for your body instead of your mind. That to me is literally the best feeling, one of the best feelings you can experience out there. Um, and anytime I feel low or anytime I feel like, oh, you know, I'm lazy, I don't want to do anything, I'd rather sit on my couch. But I think about these moments, I think about the connection with the audience, the connection with the music, that feeling of total letting go. And I go out there and perform. Nothing's better than that. And I think that brings me back no matter what state I'm in. And so I really appreciated uh, the interview you did recently with Mercedes Nieto because she talked about a lot of that, you know, stripping those moments away when we were in COVID. We didn't have the audience. We didn't have the big stage. And keeping those memories was really great for me. And looking forward to when that comes back again, the feeling is so strong on stage that it gives me the power to keep going, even when we all experience these really dark times as artists. So, yeah, I think it's it's definitely the feeling of being on stage. Nothing is like it. That's it for today, guys. But before you go away, don't forget to screenshot this episode and share it with your friends. And if you post it on social media, please tag me and our guest because we love seeing who is listening to the podcast. Thanks for being with us and I'll see you next week. Same time, same place.